Let's pray together. Oh Lord God, you are great and greatly to be praised and your greatness is unsearchable. You are great in power. You can speak the whole universe into existence with just a word. You are great in wisdom. Your understanding is infinite. You are great in love, Lord, that you would send your own son to rescue sinners like us from the perishing that we deserved and to bring us to yourself and the relationship with you which we could never deserve. So we honor you this morning. We want to give you the praise that is due you. I pray for anyone who doesn't know you, Lord, that they would come to know you through Jesus this morning. It's only through him that we can know you truly and have a relationship with you forever. Lord, I pray as we open your word together that you would speak to us through your spirit, that you would stir our hearts to embrace the truth that we hear by faith and to follow what you we hear by faith. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Most of us have seen before and after pictures. A contractor might use photos from before a remodeling project and after it's done, or an orthodontist might use images showing teeth before and after braces. Well, our text for today reminds believers of what we were before Christ and what we are now in Christ and some of the differences that transformation is intended to make in our lives. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2 as we continue our study in this New Testament letter together. 1 Peter chapter 2, we'll be starting with verse 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter is addressing Gentiles in these verses. In other words, people from a non-Jewish ethnic background. And in our little survey this morning in Sunday school, it turned out none of us were from a Jewish background biologically. And so uh, he's talking to us then as Gentiles, and he wants us to remember who and what we were before we experienced salvation in Christ. So verse 9 reminds us, we were in darkness. The first verse of all I have is Christ says, I once was lost in darkest night. And that's where we all started. We were lost and didn't even know we were lost. We were ignorant of the truth. We were blind to spiritual realities. We were in danger of endless misery in hell because we were separated from God. Verse 10 reminds us we were not a people. We were not included among God's people. We were outsiders to the privileges and blessings that belong to the covenant people of God. 
Go to Ephesians chapter 2 for a moment. Ephesians chapter 2. Paul also wants us Gentiles to remember where we came from. He starts in verse 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And verse 10 also reminds us that before we had not received mercy. God's mercy is his compassion toward those who are in misery and his inclination to help them even though they do not deserve his help. But before Christ, we had not experienced this mercy. We didn't know it was even possible. We didn't know there was forgiveness of sins through his mercy. Dale Ralph Davis tells a story about a party that was held after Alabama won the Sugar Bowl back in 1979. Coach Bear Bryant had it on a new T-shirt, but it had a hole in it. One of the guests pointed out this problem to Bryant, and the coach's response was, yeah, I know. I always tear a small hole in my T-shirts, so I'll never forget where I came from. No matter what success and acclaim he received, Paul Bryant apparently felt it was vital that he never forget that he grew up on a hardscrabble farm in Arkansas. Hardscrabble means poor soil or marked by poverty. Oh, and then Dale Davis says, and Christians must never forget where they came from, that they were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, having no hope and without God in the world. But God intervened to rescue us from what we were. He called us out of our spiritual darkness and into his marvelous light. Go to Acts 26, 18. Acts 26, 18. This is Jesus giving the Apostle Paul his commission. Acts 26, The last part of 17 says, I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 and verse 6. Maybe start in verse 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So we're spiritually blind. We can look at Jesus and see nothing Beautiful about him, nothing desirable about him, like Isaiah 53 talks about. But then verse 6 says, God does this miracle. God, who said light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So just like on the first day of creation where God said, let there be light and there's light, 
We have these dark hearts. We're blind. We don't see anything. God speaks. And now we see light. Now we see the glory of God when we see Jesus. He brought us out of darkness into his light. And then we looked at Colossians 1 last week, but it's worth repeating. Colossians 1, 12 and 13. Joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So before we were in darkness, now we're in light. Before we were not a people, but now we are the people of God. And Peter quotes from the prophet Hosea, and the Apostle Paul also uses that quote in Romans chapter 9. If you want to turn to that, Romans chapter 9. Beginning at verse 22. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles, as he says also in Hosea. I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in that place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. So God brought this change of our identity that we didn't used to belong to God and his people, and now we do by his mercy. Ephesians 2, another text about God's mercy. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working, and the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we, in this dire condition, (laughs) dead and hopeless and just goners, and then by his great mercy, he made us alive. Why did he do it? Go to Romans 15. Romans 15. Verse 8 and then verse 9. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. And for the Gentiles, that's us, to glorify God for his mercy. So God showed mercy to us in rescuing us from our darkness and deadness. 
and lostness and blindness. He showed mercy, and the goal is that we would gladly give to God the honor and praise that is due him as the great and merciful God that he is. That's why he did it. Yes, we benefit. Yes, we're not going to hell that we deserve. Yes, we're going to heaven that we don't deserve. But it's ultimately about God receiving glory as the merciful God that he has shown himself to be. Or, as we saw last Sunday, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So proclaim or show forth means to make something known, to spread a message publicly. The message which we're called to make known is the excellencies of God, the outstanding qualities of God that make him worthy of praise. And we do that, we proclaim the truth that God is worthy to be praised both by our lips and by our lives. And I want to reread something from Jerry Bridges last week just to, so we have these categories a little more solid. The glory of God is the sum of all his infinite excellence and praiseworthiness set forth in display. To glorify God is first of all to respond properly to this display by ascribing to him the honor and adoration due him because of his excellence. We call this worship. So what we've been doing this morning, call attention to the attributes of God, his greatness, his love, his mercy. We're responding to that from our hearts, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. We give praise to God with our lips. We're proclaiming his excellencies with our lips. And then... The second way we glorify God is by reflecting his glory to those around us in the way we live our daily lives. Jesus said, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We do all things for God's glory when the excellence of God's attributes is made to shine forth by our actions so that men may see it. So verse 11 and 12 coming off of 9 and 10, are a negative and then a positive way of saying, live your lives in such a way that they are consistent with the excellencies of God that you're proclaiming with your lips. So don't unsay with your life what you're saying with your lips. Don't praise God with your lips on Sunday and then Monday at work or Monday at school or Monday wherever you are, you kind of contradict (laughs) what you just said about the greatness of God this morning. So verse 11 in 1 Peter 2 says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. So as believers, we are engaged in a spiritual conflict with the world, the flesh, and the devil Peter will address our fight with the devil when we get to chapter 5, verse 8. He's going to say, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith. So we'll get to that later, but in verse 11, Peter is talking about the ongoing battle with the sinful desires of the flesh. In other words, our fallen human nature. And his basic point is, you're no longer who you used to be. Don't live the way you used to live. We've been called out of darkness. Don't walk in darkness anymore. It's very similar to what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 8. 
where he says, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So that we've, we're not who we used to be. So abstaining from flesh with us includes the physical kinds of sins we might think of. First uh, Thessalonians 4 makes that same point. Paul says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. So that's included. But not only that, it also includes other sinful desires of our fallen nature like the strong desire we all have for my will be done. That is deeply ingrained in our nature. And such a self-centered desire leads to impatience and anger with others, even our family members, when we don't get our way or other people don't cooperate with our schedules. I still fight that. Maybe you do too. So those kinds of desires are also waging war against our soul. There's a battle going on, and you can read Romans 7 or Galatians 5 about that conflict between the desires of the flesh and the spirit. And so we're called to abstain from sinful desires. Don't allow them any room. Avoid them. Stay away from them. Think of 1 John 2, 1. My little children, I write these things so that you do not sin. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he, the verses before, he said, this is, you know, we, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Don't claim not, not to have sin. Be realistic. But the goal is still not to sin. So think of a soldier going into combat. What would you think of him saying, my goal is not to get hit very much by the enemy? You'd say, no. (laughs) Your goal is not to not get hit very much. Your goal is not to get hit at all. You don't want to get a purple heart. My nephew got a purple heart in Iraq. It's, it's cool, but <laughs> it hurts to get one of those. You want to come home in one piece. And so Peter's reminding us, we're in a war here, folks. We need to take this fight seriously against our sinful desires. We don't want to end up as casualties. We don't want our souls wounded in this. We need to fight and abstain So last Sunday, we sang, O great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart, own it all, and reign supreme. Conquer every rebel power. Let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. See, it's like, no. We're going to fight by grace. Not going to do it on our own. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says in John 15, 5. But we fight by the power of the Spirit so that we're not just tolerant of sin in our life. We want to fight against it. Well, not only are we called to live distinctively from the way we used to live, we are called to live distinctive lives in the culture around us. So go to verse 12, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles. 
Why? So that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So Gentiles in this verse is a reference to unbelievers, as Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4 or 5, those who don't know God. So Peter's talking about the members of our extended family or our co-workers or our neighbors or fellow students at school who don't know Christ. So how should we live when we're around all those unbelievers? How do we live in the midst of or among those who don't know Christ. And Peter's answer is, keep your behavior excellent. Keep your conduct honorable. Our lives are to be ethically blameless and morally above reproach. More than one writer mentioned the word excellent or uh, honorable in this verse is including the idea of good and beautiful. Keep your conduct beautiful. And did you notice the context? Look at how non-Christians are regarding Christians. They slander you as evildoers. Slander is to utter false charges or to misrepresent in order to defame and damage another's reputation. So non-believers are bad-mouthing believers falsely saying they are evildoers. And we know from history, shortly after 1 Peter was written, There was a fire in the city of Rome. And Emperor Nero blamed the Christians for the fire, which launched some pretty severe persecution of Christians in Rome after that. The Christians didn't start the fire. That's slander. It was a false charge meant to defame believers in Christ as an excuse to go after them. And the Lord Jesus told us we should expect that kind of treatment from the world. Remember what he said in Matthew 5, 11? In the Beatitudes, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Falsely. It's not true. It's not fair. They shouldn't get away with it. So how do we respond? Do we complain about how persecuted we are? And I would like to keep the word persecuted reserved for people who actually really do experience persecution in this world. China and North Korea and Iran and Saudi Arabia and on and on and on. That's persecution. Not what we're getting yet, at least. And not whine and not, not get into lashing out, you know, on the internet or in person with big arguments and heated disagreements. Oh, yeah, well, you know. Jesus says, consider yourself blessed, truly happy with the fullest of, in the fullest sense of the word. And Peter adds to it, live in such a way 
live such distinctive life, lives that those kinds of criticisms don't stick. I remember seeing a memo from St. Luke's Hospital. If anyone speaks badly of your life, live in such a way that no one will believe it. That's a pretty good summary of what Peter's saying here. Let's face it. <laughs> Sometimes Christians don't have a good reputation in our culture. You notice that? Like, have you read anything in the last few years? Sometimes we are less than ideal representatives of Christ. Sometimes they're not just making it up. Sometimes it's because we're not reflecting Christ the way we're called to do. But as we seek to follow verse 12 by God's enabling grace, wouldn't it be really great if a non-Christian could look at our life and say, you know, I've heard that Christians are supposed to be unloving, but so-and-so is really a loving, caring person. Or I've always thought that Christians are a bunch of hypocrites, but so-and-so is the real deal. That's keeping our behavior excellent among the unbelievers. That even though they're slandering us as evildoers, they can't deny there's, there's some quality to this life that it's really hard to badmouth. But the goal is not just our reputation. The goal is God's reputation. So Don Whitney writes this. In high school and college, I worked for my dad at the small town radio station he managed. Not only did I love him, but I cared about his reputation, his glory before others. I knew that the quality of my work would reflect on him, not only before my fellow employees, but the people throughout the listening area as well. If I were lazy, I knew that others who worked at the station would have reason to think less of my dad. And it grieved me whenever another announcer or staffer worked carelessly. I didn't want anyone to disregard my father because of how others and I worked for him. So you see, he's not just worried about himself. How do others see me? It's how do they see my father? So Peter mentions that unbelievers not only will see our excellent behavior, they will observe our good deeds. Sounds a lot like Matthew 5.16, doesn't it? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So it is crucial that others hear our good words. And it is also crucial that they see our good deeds. Don't pick one or the other. It's supposed to be both. Our good deeds give credibility to our good words. But the good deeds are not a call to call attention to ourselves. They are call attention to God. Our goal is not others would think well of us. Oh, so-and-so is such a nice person. You know, that feels good, right? You do something for somebody else and they thank you and make much of you and say something nice. That feels good, but that's not the goal. The goal is to do it in such a way or come back to that comment in such a way that it points to God, that he's the one that gets the credit for any good thing I've done. He's the one that deserves the honor, not me. The goal is that others would think highly of our God, not just of us. 
So think of a child with exceptionally good manners. We can't help but notice how polite and respectful they are, and we think such good manners are a good reflection on their parents. Because they display courtesy and kindness in their conduct, we think well of their parents. And in a similar way, our honorable conduct and our good deeds will display God's character and call attention to his excellencies so that he is honored. Peter says, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. What is that? Well, it could mean when God visits them with salvation. When you look at Luke 1, 68, Zacharias says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. So there's this idea of God visiting with the gift of salvation. So we may be the human means of God changing the heart of an unbeliever as they observe us and our good deeds and our good behavior They go, there really is a God in heaven who makes a difference in people's lives. I want to know more about that God. I want to know more about what he's done in your life. And God may be pleased to visit them with salvation. And or it could be the day of judgment that unbelievers will not be able to deny that when they saw us, they saw evidence of God's goodness and love and power in our lives. But either way, it's about the glory of God and not about our own reputation. Well, as we close, have you experienced God's mercy in salvation? Have you ever been brought out of darkness into light? If God is convicting you, start with, I need mercy from God. If he were to deal with me according to strict justice, I'm doomed. I'm guilty of disobeying and dishonoring him and I deserve his righteous judgment. Psalm 130 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? And the answer is no one, including me. Second, I turn from sin and darkness and turn from trying to earn God's acceptance by something I can do or I could contribute. Titus 3, 5 says, He saved us, he rescued us, not according to deeds which we have done, but according to his mercy. So I trust in Christ. I believe his death on the cross is the only way God could show mercy to sinners like me and still uphold his justice. Sin has to be paid for. God can't just sweep it under the rug and pretend it doesn't matter. God is just, he's righteous, he's holy. He must deal appropriately with sin. So somebody's going to pay for sin. It's either going to be me or it's going to be somebody else. And in this case, it's Jesus. Jesus died as a substitute for sinners so that sinners who trust in him can be forgiven. So I believe his death is for my sin, 
And I believe he rose again from the dead to show he has the power to rescue people from sin, to bring people out of darkness into light, to bring people out of spiritual death into life. The Bible says if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, thank you that many in this room and those listening online know the joy of being rescued out of darkness into your light. We have come to know your mercy and live in that mercy and grace. We're yours. We belong to you now and forever. And we can't thank you enough for rescuing us. I pray for anyone who's here who doesn't know what that means, has not experienced rescue through Christ, that even today they would call out for mercy and be saved forever. Lord, I pray that you would help us who are believers to live consistent lives, help us to be a good testimony to those around us, help us to keep our behavior excellent, help us to be abounding in good deeds so that others can see there's something different about us and come to know that it's you that made the difference. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to stand and close with Build My Life.